0: How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. Excited to be here. Um, Just going to put in my own little filibuster here as the kids make their way out. Um, My name is Derek Hebert. If you don't know me, I've been my wife and family. I've been part of SOMA here for a little while. And uh, we live down in the Parkland-Spanaway area and have done missional communities down there before. So if you live down in Parkland or Spanaway and I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. Uh, We try to band together. I see Peter and Sarah there rock on. Um, So, um, but I help to uh, teach and preach every so often. I also uh, serve, my wife and I serve with kids, and uh, I'll be helping out with the uh, youth, the new youth program that's going to be starting here at the end of the month. So, if you have teenagers, you know of teenagers in your neighborhood, really encourage you to uh, have them check it out and consider it. It's going to be a great time. I'll be a part of that in different ways, and we have couple of middle school teenagers that are going to be a part of it. So um, we're going to continue on in our series in Joshua this morning. And Randy, um, in all his wisdom, asked me if I would tackle uh, a, a very difficult topic that runs throughout the book of Joshua. It's a very, um, very strong theme, kind of an undercurrent. And in, in some ways, you might even look at it as the underbelly of Joshua and some of Israel's history and so we're going to look at this theme of conquest and um, what some people might call holy war. Um, and so right away, you can tell, I mean, this is kind of difficult to even think about uh, as Christians and as the church, but we're going to try to tackle it this morning. And, and Randy said, well, Derek, you're the seminary nerd. You can handle it. So <laughs> we're going to do it. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. It's going to be good. So I want to start with this. In the 13th century, actually, you know what? Let me pray first. Let me pray. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll talk about King Louis. Um, Jesus, thank you so much for this morning, and um, thank you for your presence here with us. Your awesome presence, as we were hearing about last week, and as we go throughout the story of Joshua. Uh, his his name actually is Yeshua in Hebrew, and that's that's what your name is in Hebrew, and it means salvation. Means the Lord is salvation. The Lord brings salvation. So we praise you that we're a part of that, that you've saved us. For those of us who believe the good news and are seeking to follow you as disciples, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit this morning as we listen to your word, as we understand this um, very uh, uh, seemingly difficult theme in the Old Testament, especially uh, that our hearts would be open to what you have for us. We we need all of your help. We need all of your grace. We need all of your power and your conviction uh, from your spirit this morning. So we ask for that. Pray for strength and courage and conviction for our teachers and those who are leading and serving our kids this morning, that you would fill them and protect them from the enemy and uh, that our kids would be blessed and that they would hear the good news and that they would... Um, Uh, see just a little bit more of how great and good and loving and holy you are. pray this in your name. Amen. So in the 13th century, uh, King Louis IX, who was king of France, at the time he launched a couple of uh, uh, crusades against the Muslims in Egypt um, in hope that Jerusalem could be retaken under the church's authority and control. If you know anything about the crusades in the history of the church, in the history of Europe, uh, they were a series of, of holy wars that the church campaigned and, and to do to take back Jerusalem or the Holy Land from you know from the control of Islam, and it was uh, kind of a, always this back and forth of uh, Islam would take control and then the church would take control and then Islam would take it and then the church would take it, and there's a lot more to it than that, but that was kind of the, the, the general tenor. And then as well during those Crusades, hopefully, sort of win muslims and pagans to christ under threat of the sword so it was evangelism by extortion um which you know isn't the best way to do evangelism uh jesus never sanctioned that so um but that's that's what happened and and in many in some ways that's why we look back on that as the dark ages because of what that um, because of how that um, that went about with the church now his crusades would ultimately fail um there's King Louis there looking all stoic and chill. Um, But his crusades would ultimately fail. But what is intriguing is that his justification or the basis for his crusades was the book of Joshua. And he went to uh, the book of Joshua to as motivation, as a theological reason. And after his first failed campaign, he did two campaigns. uh, He he sought to do some spiritual reform among his military, especially because he was looking at the story of Achan and Achan's sin and what happened with Achan and how God felt about that in the book of Joshua, which Randy or, or one of us will, will hit later on in this series. And so he patterned his spiritual reform even after the story of Achan's sin in the book of Joshua. So the point here, though, is that, that I want you to see that the book of Joshua, the stories of Joshua and the conquest and the holy wars that we see in Joshua became the theological justification, the, 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 the sort of raison d'etre, King Louis was French, um, <laughs> for, for his crusade. Sorry, I just had to add that in there. The raison d'etre uh, means the, the, the main reason why. that um, King, King Louis looked to, in the story of Joshua and God's commissioning of Israel to go on this crusade against their enemies, as it were, as the foundation of his ideology. So, what is all this stuff about conquest and holy war as we see it in joshua how should we understand it as christians what does it mean for us today um <clears throat> you know we see it primarily in the old testament but but it's it's it never comes up in the new testament i mean the all of the new testament is completely silent on holy war it, it neither condemns it nor condones it um and in fact we see a very different kind of ethic and lifestyle in the New testament so i want to help us understand that this morning and, and randy Randy and I, as we talked, we really wanted to make sure that we had a good understanding of conquest and what God commissioned Israel to do against certain nations because it flows throughout the whole book. And so as we, as we go through the series and as you look at some of the different narratives and some of the different situations, we can't not understand this. Like We can't not talk about it, and we don't want to just brush it aside or sort of gloss over it or even try to sanitize it and hope that we're not going to think about it because it's just there very clearly and so I want to help us understand it this morning. We're not going to be able to tackle everything that's involved in it, obviously. We have a shorter time. Um, I would encourage you to come and talk to me maybe afterwards or later on at any time if you have more questions or if some, there's some things you're like, you know, I'm just not sure about some of this. I'm still wrestling with some of this you know, myself and why this happened and why it's in the Bible. I would love to talk more about it, okay? So, we want to have open dialogue about these things, and so please don't think that I'm force-feeding you anything that we're trying to indoctrinate you to make you believe a certain thing about it. It's okay to have some more questions and uh, maybe have a little more, you know, even to, to deal with some reluctance to really uh, grasp it and commit to it. So um, we're going to read through a text here in Joshua 10, and uh, we'll have it up here on the slides. <clears throat> you can follow along. So it starts out in Joshua 10, it's halfway through the book, but I wanted to use this, use this text to read from because it really brings out this um, reality of conquest. Starting in verse 34, uh, it, there's a whole list of, of cities here in the, the promised land as Israel has come in. There's a list of cities that were destroyed uh, by Israel, and so this is what it says. Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day, struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. And so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the low land and the slopes, all of their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord Yahweh God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Okay, so told you this was kind of difficult. I went ahead and got and just went for the jugular here. And I'm just, you know, this is great Monday morning devotional reading, um, if you are uh, looking for a good pick-me-up. But I wanted to use this, I I wanted to read from this part because I think this just, this is very clear and it's very plain, and it really draws out the harsh reality of conquest. So why are we, a couple things of why we're talking about this. Obviously, I already talked about holy war is a major theme throughout Joshua, and we need to have a clear understanding of it. You know, there is a, there's a ton of, um, like I said, there's a ton of this in, throughout the book of Joshua. Um, in fact, Joshua and Judges, the book of Judges combined, make up a large percentage of the fighting and the battle and the violence and the warfare in the Bible. Um, I like to think of Joshua as like the Braveheart of the Bible. And you've got this kind of smaller, weaker nation who's going up against a more powerful nations to take back land. I mean, that's what Braveheart's all about in a sense, in the history of the time. And so then if Joshua is Braveheart, then Judges is the Game of Thrones of the Bible. And there's some pretty just, ugh, just weird, crazy, yucky, nasty stuff in Judges. It's, Judges is probably even worse than Game of Thrones. Um, so, and suddenly every teenager wants to read their Bible, right? Oh, there's Game of Thrones in the Bible? Whoa, you know? Um, <coughs> so, but but another reason why we're talking about holy war here is this has implications for how we understand God and his character. Our theme of our series is awesome presence. So if holy war is replete throughout Joshua and God's presence is with Israel, indeed he's clearly sanctioning, commissioning, and fighting for Israel, how do we understand this in view of his character of love and his grace and his mercy and compassion and patience? I mean, that almost seems inconsistent. Um, How do we view that, understand it, and grasp it, right? And then lastly, too, from the perspective of our modern culture, holy war, uh, as it's seen here in uh, Scripture, and as they look at it throughout the history of the church or the Crusades, they see it, a lot of our culture that doesn't believe the gospel, um, that isn't committed to Christianity, has a huge problem with, with this as it relates to religion, and it's one of the it's one of the reasons why many people want nothing to do with Christianity, and so they have deep mis, they already have deep misgivings about religion, and they might see it as judgmental, as manipulative, or oppressive, and so when they hear about the medieval Crusades, and then they then they hear that even some of the Crusades were based off Joshua, based off the stories, it just further confirms what they already hold to and what they already think about Christianity, and then it further drives them away from it, so. It's a hard reality to digest. Um, one Christian author that, I was, that I've read before actually lists holy war as one of the skeletons in God's closet. Uh, there's this negative and unfortunate problematic reality in scripture. So we're going to talk about this as a community. And, and again, there's a lot to talk about here. And I don't have time to touch on everything, but I just want to provide a foundation. So two big questions I want to look at this morning. How do we reconcile God's sanctioning of holy war? with his love and compassion for all people. So this is a question of his character. How do we reconcile God's sanctioning or commissioning of holy war with also his love and compassion for people? And then secondly, how do we reconcile God commissioning Israel to destroy their enemies with the biblical command to love their enemies as we clearly see in the New Testament with Jesus and Paul and all the apostles, okay? So here's the first point. God commissioned, let's move to that that first point there, um, Andre, God commissioning or uh, sanctioning holy war for Israel to destroy their enemies is because of his justice on specific nations that were violent, oppressive, and idolatrous for a long time. So that, that part about being a long, that it was happening for a long time is really key, and I'll get into that in a second. But the specific nations that we're talking about here, our list of nations are about six or seven of them, these, these groups of people that were living in the land. Uh, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, Hittites, Girgashites, Jebusites, and Perizzites. Okay, try saying that like 10 times fast. Um, <clears throat> they have, they have, they're these nations that have been actually living in land for a long time, ever since even the time of Abraham. And, and remember, this is, we are now about probably 440, 450 years past Abraham in the story of the Old Testament because there was 400 years of Israel suffering and being in bondage in Egypt then God leads them out with Moses and they wander around in the wilderness for about 40 years and so now we're at this time right and so they've these these nations have been living in this land for a long time and they've they haven't just been like like living there as just this nice peaceful group of people enjoying the fruit of the land and worshiping no other gods except Yahweh. I mean, they are idolatrous. Uh, they were looked to in history as violent, building this oppressive empire. Uh, there was all kinds of evil and wickedness going on there for a long time that even even Abraham at the time had to deal with, right? So God commissioning Israel to destroy their enemies because of his justice on specific nations that were violent, oppressive, and idolatrous for a long time. And I want to point you to something that's really interesting. Now, This is part of of Bible interpretation. If you could flip to the next slide there in the text, Andre. Okay, all the way back in Genesis 15, God uh, is making this covenant with Abraham. It's a very classic story here, classic situation. And there's this whole situation where um, God puts Abraham in a deep sleep and he's speaking to him during the deep sleep. And he says, know for certain that your offspring... We'll be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. he's talking about Egypt. He's foretelling Egypt in the 400 years in Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that is, Egypt and Pharaoh. And afterward, they they shall come out with great possessions. And that's the first half of the book of Exodus. As for yourself, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And your people, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Listen to this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Think about this for a second. This is four hundred, at least 400 years before Joshua and Israel come into this land with conquest. And God already sees the sin and the evil, the iniquity, the wickedness that is going on. And he's willing to wait 400 years to even do something about it through his people. So note his patience. Note his compassion and his mercy. Note his willingness to see people repent or to somehow turn to him and trust in him as the one true God. But but we get a sense here of why this conquest is happening, why this holy war is happening. Because 400 years earlier... God told Abraham, this sin that's happening in this land, my promised land, has not yet come to fruition, but it will, and then I'm going to bring my people into it. And so a big part of this, then, is as he's going to bring his people into it, even it goes on to say, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoke, or actually verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, Cadmites, Hittites, Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites, all the same people. So what God has to do then is because of the sin and the idolatry and the oppressions going on, he has to thrust, he has to evict these nations and get them out so that his people can come in and enjoy the land and take care of it and be the kind of people that he always desired them to be. And I'll get into that in a second. So, God, like a good and righteous landlord who cares about his property, his good property, his good land, uh, needs to evict these nations who have become his enemies, similar to Egypt. Um, except God, God didn't evict Egypt. He actually brought judgment on them and He even gave Pharaoh in Egypt a chance to repent. That's the purpose of the ten plagues. God gave them a chance so that he can bring his people into the land according to his purpose and plan. Now, the question might be, well, why didn't God just kind of like gently nudge them out? Like, why didn't he just gently push these people out of the land and then, you know, plop his own people into it instead of having to do it with violence and bloodshed and holy war? Well, I've never been a landlord. I don't know if you've ever been a landlord. But when you have tenants that are in a space that aren't treating it very well, okay, it's not that simple. Right, Seth? Okay. So it's, not that, it's just not that simple to say, can you please leave? Like they're not going to leave right when you tell them, okay? They're not just going to leave quickly and quietly. <laughs> they're usually going to put up a fight or they're going to try to play the system or they're going to do something because they don't want to leave. Like they have their space and they're just doing whatever they want with it. They don't want to leave and find a new space. You think these nations are going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, God. Yeah, you're the one true God. Yeah, we'll just leave. I, I know. We haven't really treated this space very well. We should probably get going. No, that does, it never happens like that. I mean, every story I've heard from being a landlord, when you have hard tenants, difficult tenants, they never want to leave right when you tell them, okay? You have to apply force, and you have to apply some pressure. And it's the same thing here. These, God knows that these nations are going to fight back, and they're armed to the teeth. They're, an opp- they're oppressive empires, their cities are heavily fortified. They, they're bred for military action, unlike Israel. Okay. So it, it requires more than just a simple eviction notice. So God enacting his, God enacting his justice here um, by destroying evil and wicked people, is, uh, it, this isn't actually something new um, at this point in the biblical story. right? If you look in Genesis, we saw it with the flood. Uh, we saw it with Sodom and Gomorrah on a local level at a city. So the flood was global. Sodom and Gomorrah was a city. You see it with Egypt, obviously, with, uh, on a national and regional level. And then, and then even God applying his judgment um, and uh, applying a, you know, his wrath and his anger on sin, his justice on sin and evil, even happens with his people later on in the Old Testament, as we so well know. Unfortunately, it even starts, even happens right in Joshua with Achan. We'll get into that. It even happens continually in Judges, Samuel, Kings, and all throughout the prophets. And yet, all through all through these situations, flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, in a certain sense, Egypt, God still shows He still exhibits compassion and grace and mercy and patience because He wants people to repent. I mean, that's the New Testament. God's kindness leads us to repentance. His patience with you leads you to have an opportunity and a chance to have a heart change and, and to repent. And it's always been like that with God. But at the same time, he still takes sin seriously. And he will not allow sin, especially evil and oppressive sin that is hurting others around him, he will not allow that to go unchecked. And we want to be able to trust a God who is just like that. We need to. We have to be able to trust a system of justice that's going to take care of those things, right? And so when people who have problems, maybe problems with these biblical stories like Joshua, and they see all the bloodshed and the violence, and they're like, see, this just just confirms everything that I've heard about God is this vindictive, malicious, short-tempered, moody God, like the old greek gods that you could never really trust you just hope you didn't get on their bad side right <clears throat> like i i don't i i don't see that i mean my my response to those concerns is like i don't you're right i don't believe in that god either i don't that's not the picture of god i see in all of scripture you look at exodus 34 that god says he's a merciful and gracious slow to anger god and abounding and steadfast love and in faithfulness yet he will by no means clear the guilty, okay? And then my second response is, I, I would say, you're, you're right. I don't believe in that kind of a God. That's not the God I see in scripture. My second response is, have you, have you read the whole Bible? And have you read everything that comes before Joshua? Have you read it in context? Because if you did, you would see a far different picture of God. You might get a surprisingly different picture of God than what you think you're seeing if you only come to the Bible with preconceived notions and assumptions. So I want to help, this is, that's the first point is, God Commission, he sanctioned holy war for Israel to destroy their enemies because of his justice on specific nations that were violent, oppressive, and idolatrous um, at, for a long, long time. Now, the second point, and this is where it gets a little more sticky, okay? God's commissioning of Israel to destroy their enemies did not abolish the command to love their enemies or to, to love their neighbors or their enemies, so God's commissioning is commanding of Israel to destroy their enemies, did not abolish the command to love their enemies. Um, God's whole purpose for Israel back in Exodus 19, and it still, st- still stands for Joshua and this generation of Israel, is that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He leads them out. He leads them out of the oppression of Egypt, leads them through the sea, and he says, Out of the whole earth, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a treasured, my treasured possession. And you will be for me a kingdom of priests, not just with priests, but of priests. And that's where we get this New Testament idea of being a priesthood, priesthood of all believers, and that goes all the way back to the Reformation, that you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In a sense, you'll be a light to the world around you. So that means you're gonna be able to, you're gonna show me off to the world, to the, to the nations around you. <clears throat> and, and, and so... You see that in Exodus 19. That even goes back to Deuteronomy 7. We don't have a lot of time to go into that. Under you could just flip there, but God here, even in Deuteronomy 7, in this generation of Israelites, He's talking about what's going to happen in Joshua. And so, in order for God to bring His people into this land as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, He needs to move out these He needs to move out these other wicked and idolatrous and oppressive nations who are under his justice and under his wrath because of their sin and evil. And he needs to move them out because otherwise if they stay in the land, it's going to be hard for God's people to be a kingdom of priests. God's concern is that they're going to be influenced by them. They're going to be even oppressed by them. So God has to get them out of the way so that his people can be the kind of people that he meant them to be. Now, there's a catchphrase Throughout all of this, you can flip through that, Andre. Uh, right. um, there's a catchphrase that we saw here in the text in Joshua 10 that um, I think is important here. And you, if you noticed it, about five or six times, and this is also in other places, in Joshua, and the story of Jericho, um, which we'll probably get into later, um, and even back in Deuteronomy, is that these, these nations, these people, were to be devoted to destruction And that meant that there's a little footnote there, if you look at it, uh, that means that that they were set apart as an offering to the Lord for destruction. And then you see language of that every person in it, in this city, was to be completely destroyed. That that Joshua left none remaining. All that breathed was to be completely destroyed. And this is where it gets really hard. And this is where, honestly, I, I have a difficulty with as well. I mean, like, why would God, this just seems like genocide. I mean, this just—you know—some people even look at this as ethnic cleansing. Why would God sanction this? Why would He be okay with this? Why would He command His people to do this? But one of the big questions that comes up is: Well, is this literal? Like, is this literally all people are to be completely wiped out from these nations, so that there's there's none left of the, these nations, like they just go extinct? Or is it exaggerated? language is it like warfare rhetoric is it hyperbole is it like ancient trash talking right like we're going to come up and we're going to just dominate you I mean we are going to overwhelm you like if you you think about um, a football team when uh, you think about two football teams squaring off or whatever sport and one team just completely dominates the other team right and so then after the game or even leading up to the game, the team and the fans are like, we're going to destroy you. Well, y- we're not going to literally destroy you. I mean, r- not in terms of bloodshed. But we're going we're to <laughs> dominate you in such a way, and it's going to feel like you've just been dominated in such a way that like, you felt like you were destroyed, like the 2013 Seahawks did the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl forty eight, Right? And they just completely shellacked them. Sorry if you're a Denver Broncos fan. Um <clears throat> So, many scholars think that, <clears throat> that this was exaggerated, warfare rhetoric, like it was ancient uh, trash-talking. Um, <clears throat> and some scholars even would even say that these cities, because they were heavily for, uh, fortified, they, they, they encapsulated in them mostly military personnel. And so, uh, Israel came in. And Joshua, by the help of God, by the power of God, even in, even in a, st- a city like Jericho, where they just do this crazy, weird um, warfare strategy, and Joshua and Israel come in, and, um, <clears throat> and it's only the, the, the military guys, it's the king, it's the leader, it's his armed men that are completely destroyed, but the women and children are able to flee so that there's little to no collateral damage, right? So that's what, that's what some scholars would say. And then, of course, they would go the route of, well, this is, is just exaggerated, uh, ancient trash talking, and it's, um, <clears throat> this, this didn't mean completely, literally everyone was completely destroyed. Others might say, well, you, we have to be honest about the biblical text here. It does seem pretty clear in here and in other places in Deuteronomy leading, you know, that's foretelling this, that's commanding it, and in some of the other stories of Joshua, that everything and everyone was to be devoted to complete destruction, uh, to show no mercy. Deuteronomy 7 talks about that. Every person in it, leave none remaining all that breathed because the concern was is that if there was anyone left that those people would influence and sway israel into idolatry and we see some of that later on in judges well i'm going to say this i'm going to say i think it's all of it (laughs) and here's what i mean by that i think it's both it's literal and it's exaggerated i think it's literal in that god had a specific plan of judgment and destruction for certain nations as we saw because of their idolatry, and that they had fortified cities that needed to be utterly wiped out. That Jericho, all its walls just needed to crumble, and that no survivors were left. And I think that's, I think that's unfortunate, I think it's literal. I think if there was women and children that were in those cities, unfortunately there was collateral damage. Now, I don't think that this in, in, affected every inhabitant of the land. I think it just was in those cities. Because Israel needed to take out those, God needed to take out those cities. Otherwise, those cities completely could uh, oppress Israel. At the same time, I don't think this was genocide or ethnic cleansing. Because it didn't involve everyone in the land. And even in the story of Jericho, you have Rahab and her family that were left as survivors. Because they helped Israel. And then you have the story of the Gibeonites, which we'll get into later. That Israel, that Joshua left to be able to stay alive and to, to be a part of what Israel was doing. So it wasn't this complete genocide of these nations throughout all the land to the point that they be, had to become extinct in order so that God could carry out his purposes through Israel. I think these heavily fortified cities, as we look in Genesis, or excuse me, in Joshua 10, needed to be completely wiped out, and unfortunately everyone in them, but that, that didn't mean all the inhabitants of the land. Because you go, if you read later on in Joshua, there were still Canaanites that were still living. There were still people of these nations that were still living that Israel didn't kill, that Israel didn't destroy. And that the trash-talking element in there is to demonstrate that God is fighting for his people, and he's going to do so in such a way that it really seemed like Israel had completely destroyed their evil, idolatrous enemies, especially those that are armed and powerful. See, we have to remember, I mean, again... I'm, I'm, using, I'm saying these, these are nations, but these are their enemies. These are, these are the enemies of God. These are the enemies of Israel. They're armed, and they're ready for action, and they're ready for battle and war. Israel is this small and weak nation that needed God to bring them out of Egypt and that needs God to fight for them. These nations are not innocent. Okay? They, in God's eyes, are evil sinful, wicked, and rebellious. And they were committing in their idolatry atrocities like child sacrifice. We see that later on that unfortunately even Israel adopts and practices and that's why they need judgment on them. Okay. And even that language devoted to destruction God says that early on, right after Jericho. He says if anyone touches any of the stuff in the city and takes it for themselves because it was devoted to destruction, he himself, O Israel, you, if any of you do it, you will be devoted to destruction. So take heed. All of this stuff in God's justice, in his plan, is devoted to destruction, to judgment, to punishment. And if you take part in that in any way, you yourself will be punished. So it's not like Israel is, God's totally partial with Israel, and they're the special people, and they get to do whatever they want, and God's just gonna completely clear this path and wipe everyone out, and they can do whatever they want. No, God's saying, you need to trust me. You need to be obedient to me. Commit to what I'm doing here. Follow my instructions. Don't deviate. Because this is real. I mean, this is this is serious stuff here. So, lastly i know that this may in some sense hopefully you know some of this makes sense and maybe you have a clear understanding of holy war again there's much more to talk about this i would love to get into it more and how it fits in how it fits with god's character his justice and his mercy his overall purpose and plan for his people but what does this mean for me today as a christian in 21st century modern america because like i said before We don't ever see any hint of this in the New Testament, except for when you get to the end of the New Testament. When you look at this in Joshua, this was a unique situation. This was a unique time and what God was seeking to do through Israel to be the kind of people he always desired the world to be so that they could be a light to the nations. This is highly unique. This doesn't happen in the New Testament This doesn't happen when Jesus comes. There will be a holy war yet to come when Jesus, the one true Messiah, the one true Joshua, returns to judge all evil and restore the world and make all things new. And that's the thrust of the story towards the new creation, towards eternity, towards the new heavens and new earth. So if you read Revelation, there's a lot of metaphor In there, and there's some allegory, and there's some things, but there's some stuff that's literal. And there's some similar language in Revelation, and even what the books of Jude and Second Peter talk about and look forward and look ahead to that is similar to what's going on in the Holy War and conquest in Joshua. Jesus will return. God is patient with the world right now in all of its sin and its evil and it's injustice, and it's oppression. But there will come a day when God says enough, and he will bring judgment, and he will bring holy war, and all that is evil. And it will be final. And it will, com- it will be complete. And he will make all things new again. He will make a new promised land, a new Eden, and a new amazing city, as we see at the end of Revelation. And until that time, we participate in and we advance a kingdom that is different than how we normally think of kingdom movements or empires building themselves or revolutions and such. We advance a, advance a kingdom, we experience a kingdom that is upside down and counterintuitive to what we normally think of. Why? Because of the gospel. Because when Jesus comes, he doesn't come First, as a warrior messiah, he comes as a suffering servant. He comes, and instead of bringing violence, I mean, he, he could have easily wiped out Rome if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He comes, and he lays down his life, and he suffers. And the gospel is that God's holy war against our deepest and biggest enemy, which is Satan, and sin our sin means that he brings ultimate violence on himself he doesn't do the violence he takes the violence on himself that's the crucifixion the cross is violent and it is bloody and it destroys him he takes it on himself for the war and the the war against and the destruction of satan and our sin and indeed, he reconciles us sinners who were once his enemies back to himself in love and relationship. Instead of defeating Satan or sin or the human powers that be in the authorities of that time by taking up arms, he lays down his arms. Indeed, he lays down his very life in order to bring salvation and redemption. Colossians 2 talks about he disarmed the rulers and the authorities in the spiritual realms, the, the, the demons, through the cross. And so here's what this means, friends. Okay? As the church, as part of this kingdom, because we still live in this age of the kingdom waiting for Jesus, the true Messiah, to return. We live in a kingdom that instead of taking up arms and doing these holy crusades and trying to win people to Christ by extortion, obviously... We, we, we don't do that. We sacrifice. We lay down our lives, and we suffer if need, we, if need be. We are called to love our enemies because our deepest and biggest enemy has already been defeated and will be completely defeated in the end. It's very clear, and that's why Jesus hung on a cross, and then he resurrected Satan, sin, death. It's been final. It's been completed. And so on Palm Sunday, even today, we look forward to that. The victory that Jesus has when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, all humble as a servant, we look, for, we, 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 we look back at his victory that he achieved and it will be finally consummated and made full and complete when he returns. So therefore, our battle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against human enemies. Our battle is against Satan and demons, our own sin, the sin in other people, okay? That's the holy war that we fight in because we know that the true Messiah, the true Joshua will come once again to complete the final holy war and make all things new. So, man, there's a lot here. I, this is, and this is, I, I want you to see how this fits in and how, 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 how Joshua and what happened there fits in with the rest of the story, what that means for us, how unique and different it was then, but the holy war that we're involved in right now. Please hear, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against humanity. It's against, it's against the oppressive and spiritual powers and evil that happens through Satan, his demons, and through our own sin that we can, we can um, war against and fight against because we have the gospel, because of what Jesus has already done, right? All right. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Man, thank you for this, this hard reality of what this means in the story of Joshua. I find myself even just trembling a little bit, thinking about it and, and realizing the, the, the implications of it and the implications of what it means for us now that we live in the gospel and we live in this kingdom, reality, waiting for Jesus to return. Father thank you that your awesome presence is with us. And thank you that we don't have to have uh try to have all the answers. That that there are there is some clarity here in the story that we can um rest on. And I ask that uh for any of us who are still struggling with this and wrestling with it that uh you and your grace and your um, and your insight and your power through your spirit would give us greater insight, or give us greater faith to trust you and your character and who you are, um, and that that we would be honest about uh, who who we once were as sinful enemies of you, and we would that much more look to the cross and the resurrection and our reconciliation with you, a holy God, a just God, who is yet extremely merciful and gracious and patient, compassionate. Thank you. Thank you that we can rest on that. Thank you. Praise you, Jesus. In your name. Amen.